continue our series on work. Uh, last night, we, uh, I took, well, actually, I didn't take all the kids, but Emily continued to take our older boys uh, out uh, Halloween trick-or-treating. Uh, I won't make you do what they had to do. At one house, they had to dance to music in order to get candy. I could have done that this morning. Could have had you dance if you wanted to hear a sermon, but I was worried then that nobody would want to dance. But we continue this series on, on work, and we heard songs about work. I don't want to work. I want to bang on that drum all day. I love that song. It's a song that's uh, played every time the Packers score a touchdown. Work. Everybody's working for the weekend. This idea of work being tough and being difficult. So Let's pray over, uh, over this time as we dedicate this to the Lord. Lord, uh, we recognize that work is not always something that's exciting and, and joyful and something we look forward to being, being part of. We recognize that at some point, some of our work is, is corrupted and it becomes difficult and, and arduous and frustrating and, and even sometimes painful. Lord, we pray that uh, you, would, you would speak, even in this time, your, your message of peace and of hope, uh, a message of, of grace in the midst of difficulty. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. There's times where we probably don't feel like going to work or going to do our vocation. Have, have any of you who have had kids ever had your kids say, I don't want to go to school today? Only six parents. I would include myself. Okay, more, there's more, right? There's this part of it that oh, I just I don't want to go do it. There's some jobs that, that people take part of that are just arduous and difficult and take a toll on their bodies day after day after day. There's some jobs that are, are difficult on the mind because they're in a factory doing the same repetitive thing over and over and over. I recall one job that I, I really didn't necessarily like. It was one I actually didn't do it very long. I had 
had been working as a teacher at a Christian school, but unfortunately the school went bankrupt. So I wasn't able to do that anymore. But I had someone else get me in contact, and I could work in a college, kind of like as a uh, person uh, contacting students who were interested in this school. And so we'd, we'd get their information as they filled out the form, and then I would call them and talk to them and try to convince them over the phone that they should go to the school that I was working for. I was essentially a glorified telemarketer. And, and it was one of those things, I didn't love the job, and I didn't, I didn't love doing it, and there was part of it that I didn't love even worth. It was actually a for-profit school. So we had these lines like, James, you should totally come to the school. We have over a million dollars of scholarship that we're giving out this week. There was no million dollars, right? And there's these jobs that are like, oh, is that really truthful? Is that something that I should be doing? Not everyone has the opportunity to get out of situations like that where they're in this job that's so difficult that it was no enjoyment, where there's so much difficulty. And they just want to escape from it. And that's because, in reality, as we look at the world, there's an aspect within the world that our work and our vocation has become corrupted. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. So if you grab one of those black Bibles, that will be page 5. Um, no, page 3. In the kids' Bibles, that would be page 5. And we'll just read this one verse, verse 17. Uh, sorry, verse 17 through 19. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat your food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Dr. Wilson, about three weeks ago, talked about how work was something that God had created for people. That that to Adam and Eve and, 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 and them in the garden that they were supposed to, to care for and tend to the garden. Their, their vocation was caring for these animals. Their vocation was to, to care for the trees and, and all the things in the garden. And, and as they cared for it, they could enjoy the, the fruit of their labor, the, the fruit of the, the trees that were there, the, the, the plants that would grow up except for one of them. And because they, they went towards that one and took from the one that they, they should not eat of, their work became much more arduous, painful, and difficult. The land that had just once sprung forth bountiful goodness was now going to spring forth thistles and thorns and weeds that somehow work our way into our garden that we constantly have to work and toil after to pull out. They would have to spend more and more time working and tilling their, 
their gardens to, to make sure that they would be fruitful. And I wonder if, if they had to put in so much more work than they did before and receive so much less bounty. The thing about when work and vocation gets corrupted is it, it robs us of joy. It robs us of the, of the joy that we see in the, the growth of the field or the joy that we can see in, in, in the work. Sometimes the, the focus can be on those thorns and those thistles that you constantly need to be dealing with pulling from the ground. Those difficult individuals, perhaps, that you work with on a daily basis. And he said to Adam, you're going to toil over the land all of your life, and then because you are dust, you're just going to return to that very land. Your work is going to be hard. There's another place, too, that we can see the corruption of work and vocation in Scripture. And, and we'll have to fast forward to Egypt. We move from, from the Garden of Eden where the first corruption happened to another type of corruption in Egypt as God's people are there. God's people arrived there from this, this man named Joseph who, who was, was sold by his brothers, which you could see is another type of corruption that was happening, to some traders to essentially be a slave. And, and he rose essentially up to prominence in Egypt, being second in command to the king of Egypt and, and helping them work through this global famine because they couldn't work the ground well enough and they weren't getting water well enough, and, and, but they were able to store up food. And so this, this king of Egypt welcomed all of Joseph's family and gave them some land to work and, and they were fruitful and, and they grew in number. But then this happened. We're going to go to Exodus 1, verse 6 through 14, page 44 in the Black Bibles, or page 65 in the kids' Bibles. We can hear what happens as the story of Joseph and the family of Israel continues. Now Joseph and all of his brothers, in all of that generation, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And... If war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress, oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick 
and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. All the goodness that the Israelite people had experienced in this land of Egypt was was brought to an abrupt halt. The new Egyptian king saw their power. He, they saw what, what they could potentially do, and, and, and all these foreigners living in their midst, they became afraid, and, and, and the answer to them was oppression. The answer to them was forced labor. The answer to them at that time was to bring about slavery. In Egypt, the people of God continued to experience the corruption of work and the corruption of vocation. The corruption of work for the people of Israel were now no longer being seen as people made in God's image and instead be seen as things to do work. They are no longer someone made in God's image as a person with a spirit, with a soul, with, with communion with God. Instead, they were just looked as an object to get work done. They were workers and objects that would build the cities that the king wanted to build. They were objects and workers to, to, to tend to the farms and provide food for the people of Egypt. Ruthless working conditions instead of the fruit of their labor going to glorify God, the fruit of the uh, Israelites' labor would go to glorify the king of Egypt. You could almost say that they had turned work into a form of idolatry, praising someone else instead of praising God who is over all. But even amidst that difficulty, the people cry out to God. And because, as Mindy shared this morning uh, with the kids, and because God didn't say, well, you, gotta, you work halfway there, uh, and then I'll free you. No, that's not what he said. He, instead, he heard their cry, and, and he became the first actor to, to get his people out of Egypt. But things didn't automatically get easier for the people of Egypt. The Lord called Moses to go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And the Egyptian king's response was, I'm not quite ready to let my free labor go. Now we're going to make it harder on you. We're going to make it more difficult for you. In Exodus chapter 5, then slave drivers and the overseers went out to the people and said, this is what Pharaoh says, I won't give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. Their work became harder. Think about perhaps the the things that you need to do during the day, the, the work that you need to get done. Steve, uh, I need you to build a house, but I'm not going to give you any lumber. Just figure it out. 
Mike, I need you to pour some concrete, but I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to give you any cement for it. Figure it out. Think about your work and maybe the one thing that would, would, would be needed for what you need to do, and now you need to find it on your own but you still need to get everything else done. Their work became more and more difficult, making bricks with no straw and still requiring the same. And the difficulty of, of when our work and our vocation and our lives get corrupted by these things is sometimes it affects other things. In reality, it started corrupting perhaps their view of who God was. They were crying out for God to bring them a deliverer, and they were crying out, and they, they, they found Moses who was coming to deliver them, but then they didn't want Moses anymore. Israel decided uh, that, that they're like, Moses, you're making us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and he's making things more difficult, and and. And you're just going to lead him to kill us. Pushing back on this deliverer that God had, had brought them. This corrupted work, though, it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be, is it? To, to see people as just a means to an end. To see people just as things to do work. It corrupts us. That mindset. You may wonder, well, what does it look like for work to be corrupted today? And I think we can, we can think about a few different things in that regard. Corrupted work is workaholism today. In the 1930s, there was this guy, John Maynard uh, Keynes, and, and he said, he was an economist, and he, and he was writing about what he thought the future was going to be like. And, and it was all because of the increased technology and things that were making work easier. And, and so he envisioned sometime in the future that there was going to be a 15-hour work week. There's laughing people right now. 15-hour work week. And, and he said the biggest problem that people will have is to figure out what to do with their leisure time. In 1957, just uh, you know, about 30 years later, there was a guy named Eric Barber that predicted because of um, an easier, or that the work week should be shortened uh, in the future. And that instead of people's lives being defined by what they do for work, that their lives will instead be defined by the things that they do for leisure and the things that they do with their family. That the focus would somehow be shifted and, and not focused on work, but focused on those other things that happen in our lives. But I don't think that necessarily came true in the way those two guys predicted. There is some truth. Between 1950 and 2012, the average work week was reduced by 10%. But in that same time, other countries in Europe, their work week was reduced by 40%. There's some aspect of our lives that we've been ingrained, and in, in me being a, a, a 
a kid of Dutch origin with this hard work ethic and this desire that we should work and do it all with, with all our might and with all our soul and with all our strength almost, right? And, and, and we, we work to get the job done and then we look on the next thing to, to work on. But I wonder if that's a way that we've perhaps corrupted work from what God had attended. Instead of being in places that are offering unlimited overtime, or even places that are requiring overtime, mandating that to work at this uh, company, you have to work 50, 55 hours a week. Hmm. Corrupted work. Or think think of this in a little bit different way. Workplaces that give a salary and just say, get the job done no matter what, assuming that it's going to be more than 40 hours or 45 or or 50, knowing that, that they'll give you this amount, but you just have to get the job done no matter what, forming in our lives perhaps this workaholism. Because I think this workaholism starts to create something in us, starts to create in us this idea that our identity is our work. That who we are as a person is our work. Think about it. When you, when you meet someone new, you want to find out who they are. To find out who they are, most of us would ask what they do. Saying that, Your work is your identity. But as Christians, we don't believe our work is our identity. We believe Christ is our identity. You see how those are competing things within our life. But I think when we think about corrupted work, we need to think beyond West Michigan, beyond the United States, and and think into other countries and, and where we see and people experience corrupted work. But I think we also have to think about our role in it. We like to buy goods and more goods for cheaper prices. And our desire for the same thing at a better price, how has that caused other people to experience corrupted work? Think about forced labor. That's what they call slavery these days in the 21st century. It's forced labor. In China and Myanmar are two countries that, uh, of many that used forced labor to produce goods. Myanmar, uh, the same country that the Chin Church that meets in the afternoon is from. In, in China, we just uh, ordained someone last week from there. We find significant forced labor in China in the uh, Xinjiang province province in China. It's, the, it's northern and western, and it's, it's this pretty large area, the most north and west province. There are about 17 different types of goods that are produced via forced labor or slavery, among them being hair products and clothing and cotton and footwear and other things. These common goods created by forced labor. 
and the forced labor is from a Uyghur population of people. People look down upon receiving little, perhaps really no pay, not allowed to leave, and they have limited or no communication with their families. They're basically just abducted and brought into work, looked down upon. If somehow communication with the family is allowed, it's it's intricately oversong. There's testimonies from people who are in the Uyghur population that were enticed, actually, into working there. Said that they would be working in some type of condition and doing a certain thing, but in reality, it was just going to be forced labor, and they would undergo some ideological indoctrination. In Myanmar, forced labor is there to produce rubber, to harvest trees uh, of teak, bamboo, sugarcane, sunflowers, bricks. Pretty standard, normal stuff. But the, the sad thing about work being corrupted is that it, it's, it's not something that was just corrupted for adults. That there's places around the world that use forced child labor. The United States Department of Labor uh, do a study every once in a while, and I think it was either 2018 or 2020. The study showed that there are 73 million children subject to hazardous child labor around the world. A couple items that were often produced or procured through child labor include things like cotton, coffee, sugarcane, tobacco. Doesn't make me feel good as a guy that likes coffee. And I think the difficulty with, with these things is that we wonder where, where is it that our, our own purchasing is taking part or encouraging these types of things. Sometimes because of our global economy, we don't know exactly where things are from. Some of the examples the Department of Labor gave is, is the idea of, well, they, people want to purchase chocolate and they purchase it from Europe, but unfortunately, this European country got their cocoa from West Africa and South America that was got procured by child labor. There's, there's so many different layers to these types of things. One of the things I read about recently but, but heard about earlier in 2019 is avocados. Avocados have become so popular in America that we are actually buying four times, I think, more avocados now than we were a couple years ago. And the drug cartels in, in, in Mexico noticed. And so they started going after the farmers and making the farmers work, sometimes via gunpoint, to gather the avocados, and they would take a portion, or most of them, as well as the money. Where is it that our life is intertwined with some of these ways where we experience corrupt, where others experience corrupted work? 
it's difficult to know in this modern economy. And I, I don't mean to just make us feel bad, but I, I do wonder where is it and, and how should we be investing in and looking at the goods that we purchase? I'm guilty of it. Just flippantly, maybe not flippantly, but just going on to Amazon and saying, I need this thing, and then I see it, and I buy it. Not knowing really anything about the company, not knowing any, anywhere of where it's produced or the, the living conditions of the people. Perhaps we need to, as we think about reframing the idea of vocation and work for ourselves, also thinking about our buying habits and how that reframes the ways others experience corrupted work. So how does God meet us in this space of corrupted work? How did, how did God meet the Israelites in their space of corrupted work, of, of being slaves in Egypt? Well, they were, they were brought out, and God started working in them in forming new habits. They had experienced this slavery for years, and, and God needed to bring about them a, a change of habit that would, would change the way that they would look at the work and the vocation that they were to take part in. So he, he worked to shape how their work was an offering like we talked just last week. That instead of their work being something that brought glory to Pharaoh, but now their work, the grain that they brought, the sheep that they tended, the bulls that they cared for, would be offered directly for the glory of God and who he was. God would, would work in not only the idea of their work as offering, but he would give them a gift of grace. We call it the Sabbath. We call it a day of rest. It was God's gift to his people. No longer like they were in Egypt, required to work all day, every day, until the number of bricks were made or until the thing was built. Instead, God says, no, work six days and rest. Rest in me. Not something on Sabbath that is supposed to be an arduous thing about what to do and what not to do, but a gift that God gave his people that they could take a rest from their labors and be able to rest in him instead that they would be able to worship him and glorify him because of that grace that he has given. The other thing, the other grace that God, God gave his people uh, was parties. We call them festivals in the Old Testament. But God gave the gift of celebration where they would take their work and for perhaps a week at a time, celebrate what the Lord had been doing. Creating this discipline of celebration within their life. Maybe not quite everybody's working for the weekend. But they are working and then they'll be able to celebrate the things that they've been able to accomplish in their week, in their work time 
celebrating and glorifying God for the bountiful harvest that they were able to get. You know, there's this, this verse that I, I, maybe I've overseen, uh, I, no, that's not it. Let's go, here we go. In Deuteronomy, where, where, where Moses is instructing the people about kind of these celebrations and these feasts. And he's instructing them to take silver and buy something. And as they say, cattle, sheep, or wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish. Then go to your house, and you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Have you ever thought about that? That God wants you to take the, the things that you have done throughout the week and, and, and the, the money that you've earned and turn around and celebrate. Even through the midst of the, the difficulty and the long hours and so on, he wants you to have the grace of rest and the grace of of celebration, gathering around the table with, with loved ones that you care for, using a, a portion of your income to rejoice and be glad for the things that God has given you. Have we ever thought about that in that way? I, I can't say that I knew this verse off the top of my head, but God wants you to celebrate even in the midst of difficulty. There was a, um, a teacher that I worked with that I told him about, I think something went wrong on our car and, and we needed to fix it. And he said, Steve, you know, every time that something goes wrong, he's like, what I do and, and what my wife and I do is, is we go and, and we, we get it fixed and then we, we go out to dinner and recognize our thankfulness in whatever situation that just went wrong. And I don't think that's a practice that I had ever heard about before that. To celebrate even when the things go wrong in our life because God is still in control. That God is still watching over us, paving the way through other vocations that whatever the problem is, whether it's a transmission that went out, or whether it's a, a furnace that got broken, or, or whether it's, it's a roof that is leaking, that God has someone here on this earth who he has shown it to be their vocation to come into those positions and to bring restoration. I think that's something to bring glory to God, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of the difficult, corrupted work life that we experience. Let's pray to God. Lord, we thank you for the many different vocations, the many different hardworking people, those who come home with sore backs, calloused hands, those who need a rest from doing the same thing over and over and over again. We thank you for the grace that you give us, a, a grace of restoring practices in our life where we can come to you and give glory to you. Those ways where you come in your life and you offer the grace of a restful day. Those times when you, you offer grace to us by telling us to go out to dinner and to celebrate 
the goodness that you have done in our lives. And we thank you for the grace that is Christ, which is above all our identity. The one who fully encapsulates our life and the one whom we truly try to live like. That grace that came in our life, not by our own work, but by pure and sheer grace from you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.